0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Stone Pages RKO News Podcast number 258. I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, before we get started, I would like to apologize on behalf of Stone Pages for the large amount of time between 256 and 257. Uh, Diego and I, as well as our uh, audio engineer, we had a lot of computer problems, as well as a lot of personal stuff uh, getting in the way. Therefore, we couldn't provide you the news uh, as quickly as we uh, have been able to before. But um, now we're back, and we're going to try to stick to the schedule that we always uh, stick to. So uh, let's get to the news. But before I get to the news, I would like to mention that recently I was the guest on another podcast called Archeotech, where we discussed the use of the Windows Surface Pro 3 and 4 As a tool for archaeologists. If you're interested in archaeology or technology within archaeology, I suggest you go listen to that podcast. It's actually a very fantastic podcast run by Chris Webster and Chris Sims, who also run a lot of other podcasts on the Archaeology Podcast Network. But without further ado, I say let's get to these stories. And the stories today, as always, have been collected from a various amount of sources around the web, and you can view the sources for all of the stories covered here today, as well as any stories that we may have missed, by visiting news.stonepages.com. Now, as an apology for how long the last podcast took to get out, we actually have a slightly longer podcast this time. So we will be starting with using math by looking at the statistical techniques used to find paleoarchaeological sites. We'll then be looking at DNA following the out of Africa or the peopling of the islands around the eastern sea. After that, we'll be looking at some tasty slow food, uh, tortoises, I guess you could call that slow cooking. After that, we have some old news about a seminar which was held about hill farts. After that, we have some more cooking news. It seems that humans were actually responsible for the extinction of the emu and continuing in the same Degree, we have the Neanderthals maybe dying out due to diseases from modern humans. After that, we have some ancient humans being found in Vietnam. Then we have some new DNA that sheds light on the early Americans. After that, we have a rock that will make her smile from ear to ear, an 11,000 year old shale pendant, the earliest known Mesolithic art in Britain. Then we have a 5,000-year-old rock shrine discovered in Bulgaria. After that, we have some fossils from Spain, which is the earliest evidence of Neanderthals. Then we have a 3,000-year-old bison hunting site found in Arizona. And finally, we will round off with an untouched Bronze Age burial mound discovered in England. I gotta say, with all of these stories about uh, Neanderthals, I'm actually kind of Neanderthaling for them. And now with that uh, bad joke out of the way, let's get to it. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, and now for the first story of today's podcast. We're actually not looking at megalithic monuments for once, nor anything related to Stonehenge. Instead, we'll actually be looking at the use of mathematics in archaeology, specifically from the United States. News specifically come from the commercial organization known as Logan Simpson, who not only specializes in landscape architecture and environmental services, but also employs archaeologists who carry out what is known as historic archaeology. Now, the archaeologists worked in an area of southern Nevada known as the Great Basin, which has 19 separate sites that date from the Paleoarchaic Period that ranges from 10,000 BC to 5,000 BC and marks the transition from the Pleistocene to the Holocene eras. Through the study of the already known sites from this area, as well as the use of a a statistical model known as predictive modeling, the archaeologists were actually able to identify new sites or at least predict where they might be found. Now I can already hear you ask what is predictive modeling or what does it do? And what it actually does is that it utilizes statistical data and then predicts outcomes. This has been successfully used to detect crime as well as identify criminals and also in a lot of other fields of study. It has also been used to cover uh, previously unknown human settlements in Wyoming, so this is actually not something uh, really new. It should be noted that the method is not perfect, as there was a spectacular failure back in 2008 uh, in the financial sector, as I'm sure that we're all aware. Now Jesse Adams, who's the archaeological team leader for Logan Simpson, says that the Pleistocene-Holocene transition is a fascinating yet underrepresented time period in the Great Basin. Through the creation and later revision of a predictive model using GIS technology, we are able to successfully identify archaeological sites from this time period on the landscape. And now on to our second story, we actually have some genetic news. I know we do this a lot, but this one is actually quite interesting as it studies the peopling of the continents and islands around Africa. Now typically when we study populations moving outside of Africa it is usually done by comparing populations which does have some problems mostly in terms of resolution and dating but the results were still largely consistent pointing towards an African ancestry for what is known as anatomically modern humans or AMH for short. However a new approach to studying migration where the lineage of a people are studied rather than populations in itself has actually revealed a lot of new details, among which is a detailed geography of the migrations, which revolutionizes our knowledge of how the peopling of the world occurred and actually gives a stronger basis for the idea that almost all species were replaced by these AMH. Now, as we've talked about quite a lot on the show, Africa is the most likely area for where modern humans dispersed into the rest of the world. Now, there are still a lot of basic questions about the exits of the AMH from Africa, most of which are how many founding exits are there and how many of these can be seen in the archaeological record, which of these can be seen genetically, also which routes were taken by the AMH, when were they taken, how were they taken, and why were they taken specifically. Now, there is a consensus slowly growing for the single southern dispersal of the AMH via the mouth of the Red Sea, which lies around the coast of the Indian Ocean. Initially, these populations would have been going to Bali, but ultimately would have been going to Melanesia and Australia, as well as to the Americas. However, there are still some problems, even though there is a clear evidence for a single successful ex-African AMH lineage. The big problem lies in the scenario, which is described as both surprising and counterintuitive, namely in the fact that there is an absence of severe drift, meaning a single group would be expected to be involved in multiple founder lineages that would have spread to different Eurasian locations. This does bring up a big problem because a single successful African exit for the AMH does have several implications. The simplest implication of this is, is that the number of possible routes taken by the AMH would have been severely decreased. This decreasing of routes also brings with it another question, because then the new model for explaining this has to explain how both Europe and Asia could have been colonized from the same single exit group that came out of Africa. Now, while there may be a problem with using this new model, there is actually genetic evidence for this southern route being used, which would then take them across the mouth of the Red Sea. However, there is sadly a lack of dated archaeological evidence due to rising sea levels, which has drowned much of the coastal remains. Much of the relevant uh, datable archaeological material lies either on the Indian subcontinent or on the eastern side of the Indian Ocean. The first archaeological evidence of this seems to be from New Guinea, where the first occupation of the island has been radiocarbonated back to 49,000 BP. And now for a slightly shorter story, which might take a while because the subject of the story is so slow, uh, the dietary preferences of prehistoric people in Israel. It has recently been discovered by researchers from Tel Aviv that tortoises were actually Part of the prehistoric diet in an area known as the Kasem Caves, which lies 12 kilometers north of Tel Aviv. Here, human occupation was identified by the researchers back in 2010, which started some 400,000 years ago, with the actual occupation lasting 200,000 years. Now, as is expected of the people from the area, there was a tradition for capturing cooking and eating large game, as well as the vegetarian preferences of their diet. However, the researchers were also able to identify that tortoise was a large part of the dietary preference in this group. This is especially noteworthy as the turtles do not carry the same nutritional value as the larger game does and actually takes more time to prepare as it does require a lot of effort to not only capture it but also to transport and prepare the tortoise itself. However, the actual preparation of the turtles themselves did vary somewhat. There were identified two main ways of how these turtles were prepared. It was either through one method, which was just to throw the turtle as it was in the shell on the fire, and the other way was to split the shell open with a knife and then cook the meat individually. Now, due to the fact that remains from the turtles were found throughout the cave, it is believed that the uh, turtles themselves were a substantial part of the diet for some 200,000 years of the occupation in the cave. Dr. Ruth Blasco, who is a leading member of the research team, says that in some cases in history, we know that slow-moving animals like tortoises were used as preserved or canned food. Maybe the inhabitants of Kasm were simply maximizing their local resource. In any case, this discovery adds an important new dimension to the know-how, capabilities, and perhaps taste preferences of these people. And now for our next story, I've made the executive decision to pick something shorter, seeing as our last story was quite long. Now, I am aware that uh, this story is actually old news by now, but I do make my living out of old news. So uh, here we go. The news are specifically on the seminar, which will explore the ancient landscape of a hill fort in Wales. The area that is being discussed is the area known as Old Oswestry, which is the landscape surrounding an Iron Age hill fort in the Welsh Marches that lie near Oswestry in northwest Shropshire. The seminar itself is entitled A Wider Understanding of Old Oswestry and its Setting, and is actually the second seminar uh, organized by the campaign group known as WHO, which is spelled H-Triple-O-H apart from being an integral part of Knock Knock Jokes, who is actually also a group that is concerned with fighting uh, targeted development in the landscapes of ancient hillforts. The seminar was visited by a number of different speakers, one of which is Dr. Rachel Pope, who is from the University of Liverpool and is a specialist in hillforts and prehistory. She made the case that the setting of hillforts should actually be recognized as a heritage protection concern. One of the other speakers was Peter Reveal, whose presentation was on how the prehistoric finds from North Shropshire, which are reported by the Portable Antiquity Scheme, could reveal something about the county's wider archaeological landscape. One of the other speakers is David Matthews, who is a hillfort researcher, and as part of his talk, he provided an analysis of the intervisible links and tribal connections that lie between Old uh, Offer Street and the hillforts of the northern marches. Tim uh, Mallon, who is a heritage planning expert, examined how the location, the ancient routes, and trading links helped define the importance of uh, old Street in the medieval period. And finally, there was a talk by Carolyn Malim, who actually asked whether archaeology can unlock the truth or fiction behind folktales and legends of the landscape itself. And uh, sorry for uh, people who are listening to this that I kind of read up from the uh, story itself, but there wasn't really much to talk about. I'm actually kind of sad that I missed that talk. It would have been lovely to go and actually talk to some of these people and might have provided for um, some fun content for the uh, podcast. But uh, sadly, I think I was very busy then. And now for our next story, we learn that humans were actually responsible for the extinction of the emu ancestor. Which is nice knowing that Australia is full of animals which seem deemed to only just want to kill us, that for once we actually got there first. This comes as the result of a study done by a team of archaeologists from the University of Colorado at Boulder, which lies in the US, and they have been investigating uh, some of the reasons why the giant flightless ancestor to the emu may have been driven to extinction. The bird in question that they have been studying is called Ginornis newtoni, which grew to over two meters in height and weighed in at around 220 to 240 kilos. The bird itself seems to have roamed Australia somewhere around 50,000 years ago, which is roughly contemporary with the uh, early humans arriving to the continent. It appears that these early humans did like the taste of the uh, bird's eggs, which then played a significant part in the decline uh, of the species by restricting uh, its reproduction. Now, the evidence for this comes from a uh, series of analysis that was done by the archaeologists on the burnt eggshell fragments. The eggs were first dated using what is called optical stimulated luminescence dating, uh, which was then corroborated by radiocarbon dating. Now, after this dating, the scientists did further analysis on it, uh, studying the amino acid decomposition, which then proved that the eggs were not just burnt by wildfires, but uh, the fire or whatever burned it was more concentrated and deliberate than just natural causes. Professor Gifford Miller, who's the associate director at Colorado University, is quoted saying, we consider this the first and only secure evidence that humans were directly preying on now extinct Australian megafauna. We have documented these characteristically burned ginornous eggshells at more than 200 sites across the continent. And for our next story, we take a step back from killing animals and go back to what we're oh so good at as humans historically anyways, which is killing each other. However, this time it is germ warfare we're talking about instead of just normal warfare, specifically diseases. This comes as the result of a new study that shows that Neanderthals may well have been infected by diseases that were carried out of Africa by waves of anatomically modern humans, or Homo sapiens, as we call them. The diseases that were carried uh, out of Africa by the Homo sapiens are believed to have caused, or at least contributed, to the demise of the Neanderthals due to both species being hominin and therefore making it easier for pathogens to jump between the populations. Researchers that were part of the study from the Universities of Cambridge and Oxford Brooks have actually been reviewing some of the latest evidence which we have found in the pathogen genomes and DNA from ancient bones. From this, they could conclude that some of the infectious diseases that we have today are likely many thousands years older than we previously thought they were. Dr. Charlotte Holcroft, from Cambridge's Division of Biological Anthropology, says that many of the infections likely to have passed from humans to Neanderthals, such as tapeworm, tuberculosis, stomach ulcers, and types of herpes, are chronic diseases that would have weakened the hunter-gathering Neanderthals, making them less fit and able to find food, which could have catalyzed the extinction of the species. Holcroft continues saying that humans migrating out of Africa would have been a significant reservoir of tropical diseases. For the Neanderthal population of Eurasia, adapted to that geographical infectious disease environment, exposure to new pathogens carried out of Africa may have been catastrophic. However, it is unlikely to have been similar to Columbus bringing disease into America and decimating native populations. It's more likely that small bands of Neanderthals each had their own infectious disasters weakening the group and tipping the balance against survival. Previously, it had been believed that the explosion of infectious diseases started somewhere around 8,000 years ago, which was coinciding with the dawning of agriculture. This is due to increasingly dense and sedentary human populations which coexisted with livestock, which then created a perfect environment for disease to spread in. However, the latest evidence, according to researchers, suggests that the disease had a much longer burn-in period that predates agriculture. Both Holcroft and the co-author of the study, Dr. Simon Underdown, who is a researcher in human evolution from Oxford Brookes University, says that while there is no hard evidence of infectious disease transmission between both humans and Neanderthals, it must have occurred, not only due to an overlap in time and geography, but also the evidence for interbreeding. As mentioned previously, the Neanderthals would have been adapted to the diseases found in the European environment, and vice versa, the modern humans would have been adapted to the African diseases, which they then would have brought with them in the waves of humans moving into Europe and Asia. Two of the diseases that are mentioned as very likely uh, candidates For humans bringing with are herpes simplex 2 and heliocobacter pylori, which we actually did cover previously in one of our stories about UTSI. Herpes simplex 2 is a virus that is known to cause genital herpes, and the heliocobacter pylori is a bacterium that causes stomach ulcers. Holcroft does admit that there may be multiple factors to the extinction of the Neanderthals, stating that it is probable that a combination of factors caused the demise of Neanderthals, and the evidence is building that spread of the seas was an important one. Some of the other factors that she mentions are uh, extinction range from climate change and the early human alliance with wolves, which resulted in a dominance of the food chain. So, all in all, a pretty interesting story, but I say that it is time for something different, and let's hear about something where we aren't consistently killing each other. So, on to the next story. And now, in the immortal words of John Cleese, time for something completely different. This time we're actually looking at living humans, nobody wiping each other out, as we've been looking at in the past two stories. Traces of ancient humans have been found in Vietnam, which has been described as a breakthrough. The study was led by a team of Vietnamese and Russian archaeologists who have found several valuable artifacts in the central highlands of a province called Jilai, and these artifacts are said to have belonged to ancient humans from around 800,000 years ago. The artifacts show traces of Homo erectus, which includes fossils and more than 200 stone tools that were discovered at 12 locations around An town. Dr. Nguyen Hai, who is the chief of Vietnam's Institute of Archaeology, said that it was the biggest and most important archaeological discovery not only for Vietnam but also for Asia. As mentioned in the start of the story... Uh, The Russian team was also included, and the Russian team worked with the Vietnamese Institute on the two-year excavation. The archaeologists hoped to publish the findings at an international conference, and Huynh Nu Thu Han, who is the vice chairwoman of the People's Committee of July, said the Vietnamese province will launch a project to preserve the ancient sites of the area. Alright, and I did kind of promise that we wouldn't do any more uh, stories about death or destruction or people dying out, but this one I thought was uh, quite relevant, as we did discuss the uh, non-Columbian impact with the Neanderthals. This story is actually on ancient DNA on the early Americans, and this is the first large-scale study of ancient DNA done on the early American people from the pre-Columbian and post-Columbian period, and that it actually shows and confirms the devastating impact of the European colonization uh, on the indigenous American population of the time. The study was led by the University of Adelaide's Australian Center for Ancient DNA, or ACAD for short, and the researchers constructed a genetic history of the um, Native American populations by looking at the DNA of 92 pre-Columbian mummies and skeletons between 500 and 8600 years old. The joint lead author of the study, Dr. Bastian Lamas, who is also the senior research associate with Adcat said that surprisingly none of the genetic lineages we found in almost 100 ancient mummies were present or showed evidence of descendants in today's indigenous populations. This separation appears to have been established as early as 9,000 years ago and was completely unexpected, so we examined many demographic scenarios to try and explain the pattern. The only scenario that fit our observation was that shortly after the initial colonization, Populations were established that subsequently stayed geographically isolated from one another, and that major portions of these populations later became extinct following European contact. This closely matches the historical reports of a major demographic collapse immediately after the Spaniards arrived in the late 1400s. However, the genetic history has also gone the other way, showing a more precise timing of the first people entering the Americas via the Beringian Land Bridge, which connected Asia and the northwestern tip of North America during the last ice age. The director of ACAD, Professor Alan Cooper, said that our genetic reconstruction confirms that the first Americans entered around 16,000 years ago via the Pacific coast, skirting around the massive ice sheets that blocked an inland corridor route, which only opened up much later. They spread southward remarkably swiftly, reaching southern Chile by 14,600 years ago. One of the other joint lead authors, Dr. Lars Ferren schmitz from the UCSC, said that genetic diversity in these early people from Asia was limited by the small founding populations which were isolated on the Veringian land bridge for around 2,400 to 9,000 years. It was at the peak of the last ice age when cold deserts and ice sheets blocked human movement and limited resources would have constrained population size. This long isolation of a small group of people proved the unique genetic diversity observed in the early Americans. And now a story for the listeners who like wearing jewelry. This this story comes to us from England, where an 11,000-year-old pendant has been found, and it is the earliest known Mesolithic art in Britain. The pendant itself was found at an excavation by archaeologists during the excavation of an early mesolithic site at Star Carr in North Yorkshire and is quite unique according to r- new research. As I mentioned before, the artwork on the pendant is the earliest known mesolithic art in Britain and it is crafted from a single piece of shale measuring only 3 mm thick and 31 by 35 mm. As a whole engraved motifs on a mesolithic uh, pendant are extremely rare, but no other engraved pendants made of shale are known in Europe. It should be noted that when the archaeologists uncovered the pendant last year, the lines on the surface were barely visible. Therefore, researchers had to use a range of digital microscopy techniques to generate a high-resolution image of the pendant, as well as scientific analysis to determine the style and order of the graving, as well as whether or not the pendant had been strung or worn, and whether or not the pigments have been used to make the lines more prominent on the piece itself. However, it should be noted that while shale beads, a piece of perforated amber, and two perforated animal teeth have been previously recovered from Star Starkar, the piece of shale is the first perforated artifact with engraved designs that has been discovered on the site. Star Starkar is located near what used to be a huge lake in the Mesolithic era, and the pendant was discovered, in one of the lake edge deposits. One of the co-directors of the excavation, Dr. Chantal Conneller, from the University of Manchester, said that this was a time when sea level was much lower than today. Groups roamed across Dockerland and into Britain. The signs on our pendant are similar to those found in southern Scandinavia and other areas bordering the North Sea, showing a close cultural connection between northern European groups at this time. For those of you who don't know what Doggerland is, around 16,000 years ago, at the very earliest, uh, Doggerland was a huge landmass which covers most of what is in North Sea today, making a direct land connection, or at least somewhat direct land connection between Denmark and England, as well as uh, France, Netherlands, and Belgium, all the way up to the uh, southern part of England, as well as some of the landmass surrounding England itself. And now we go to Bulgaria, where a 5,000-year-old rock shrine has been discovered. The shrine itself is actually known as Skali, or Eagle's Rock, and it's a beautiful rock formation that is located near the town of Sarnica in southern Bulgaria. As I mentioned before, the rock has been identified as a prehistoric rock shrine from the 4th millennia BCE, and was accidentally discovered by a young photographer, who discovered the huge human faces hewn into the rocks on the northern slopes of the Rhodope Mountains. This discovery was verified by Professor Anna Raduncheva and Associate Professor Stefanka Ivanova, two archaeologists from the National Institute and Museum of Archaeology of the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences, that is quite a mouthful, both who specialize in the study of numerous rock shrines in Bulgaria's mountains. They believe that the natural rock formation was fashioned into the rock shrine that it is today by humans during the Copper Age, which lies between 3500 BC and 3000 BC. During the three-day exploration of the area, the archaeologist and the photographer also made further discoveries, which was two more half-face human profiles, one which appears to be a female and another one which appears to be male, though it is not as well preserved. Both faces measure up to 7 to 10 meters in height and stands between 30 to 40 meters above the ground. It is believed that the shrine had an entire gallery of faces, though not all of them have been preserved. It is also worth noting that opposite the female profile, the photographer and the archaeologist found what appeared to be an altar or astronomical observatory that was hewn into the rocks, which resembles nearby altars that are well known at ancient shrines. Radoncheva has actually studied prehistoric rock shrines in Bulgaria for several decades, even as part of international teams. And Radoncheva says that the culture's pantheon was based on the constellations and that all shrines were used as astronomical observatories. Both Ivanova and Radoncheva emphasized that the Eagle's Rocks Formation was part of an entire system of a holy prehistoric territory that stretched far along the northern ridges of the Rhodope Mountains. Radoncheva adding that the Holy Territory starts somewhere near Mount Kupina and goes along the entire ridge of the mountain. There are similar rock structures that were hewn there and which appear to be connected to the shrines at Eagle's Rock. Similar shrines can also be found in other mountains in Bulgaria, such as Shrednagora Mountain and the Balkan Mountains. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and now if you are getting tired of Neanderthal stories, I'm sorry, but here's another one. This one coming to us from Spain, so at least we have some nicer weather there. Uh, This is specifically focusing on fossils from Spain that show early genetic evidence of Neanderthals in the area. Now, previous analysis of the hominins from Cima de los Suesos, a caveside near Sierra Atapuyaca in North Spain, show that the mitochondrial DNA of these hominins is closely related to Denisopans, which is an extinct relative of Neanderthals in Asia. This was slightly unexpected as the skeletal remains from the cave carried Neanderthal-derived features, and therefore researchers have been working on sequencing the nuclear DNA from the fossils from the cave, and the results show that the Sima de los Huesos hominins were indeed early Neanderthals. This also does answer some other questions, seeing as, until now, it has been unclear how the 28 individuals from the cave were related to Neanderthals and Denisovans. Matthias Meyer of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology said that the Cima de los Huesos is currently the only non-permafrost site that allows us to study DNA sequences from the Middle Pleistocene, a time period preceding 125,000 years ago. Juan Luis Azuaga of the uh, Conflutense University in Madrid, Spain, who also led the excavations at the cave for three decades said that we have hoped for many years that advances in molecular analysis techniques will one day aid our investigation of this unique assembly of fossils. Now, the nuclear DNA sequences recovered from two specimens show that they are indeed from the Neanderthal evolutionary lineage and are more closely related to the Neanderthals than to the Denisovans. This then could be an indication that the population divergence between Denisovans and Neanderthals had already occurred when the Sima de los Huesos hominins lived. Svante Pavo of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology adds to this saying that these results provide important anchor points in the timeline of human evolution. They are consistent with a rather early divergence of 550,000 to 750,000 years ago. Of the modern human lineage from archaic humans. Now here we need to make a very important distinction before I go on. As I mentioned earlier, the nuclear DNA is more closely related to Neanderthals than Denisovans. However, the mitochondrial DNA is more closely related to Denisovans than the Neanderthals. This would then indicate that the mitochondrial DNA seen in the late Pleistocene Neanderthals may have been acquired at a later time in their history, perhaps as a result of gene flow from Africa, which could possibly have been from the more anatomically modern humans. And now for some American archaeology news, where a 3,000-year-old bison hunting site has been found in Arizona at a site called Cave Creek Midden, which lies in the desert upland of southeast Arizona, close to the Mexican border. The site featured hundreds of bones and bone fragments along with dozens of cobblestones and flake and ground stone tools. The site itself has been investigated before, which was back in 1936, where it revealed stone tools and other artifacts that were typical of the critical phase in southwestern history, which lies between 4,500 BC, when it is believed that humans first started to resettle the desert of the southwest. Here they also developed the farming methods for maize. Sadly, very little has been found, and even less is known from this phase of southwestern history, which is thought to be ancestral to the Mogollon culture. The site has also been excavated more recently by Dr. Jesse Ballinger and Dr. Jonathan Malbury, along with their colleagues, who investigated the site in the fall of 2014. The aim of this investigation was to uncover what previous excavations had either missed or dismissed, among which was a deep layer of dark soil about 45 centimeters thick, which was rich with cobbles, bison bones, and a few stone artifacts. The dark soil is important as it marked the boundaries of what had been a spring-fed wetland and has been radiocarbonated to about 1300 BC. While the site itself contained the shaped hand tools, as well as the large amount of bison not usually found in this area, It is odd that there is no material culture related to butchering and cooking, which is usually associated with these types of kill sites. These would be projectile points, choppers, knives, and pounders. Out of the 83 bison bones found on site, only two were broken open, though it is believed that this could have been a result of the bison getting stuck in the mud. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for the final story of today's podcast, which is on an untouched Bronze Age burial mound, which was discovered in northwestern England. The site itself was found when a metal detectorist found a Bronze Age knife and a chisel in a small field near the mound itself, and then reported these finds to the portable antiquity scheme. In the area itself, both of these artifacts are in fact quite rare, and they are remarkably well-preserved. So far, the preliminary investigations suggest that the monument itself was in use for 1500 years from the late Neolithic period to the Middle or Late Bronze Age. Now, of course, the site itself needs to be excavated, and the people who are doing that will actually be the firm called Dig Ventures, which is an archaeology crowdfunding platform. They have launched a campaign to excavate the rare unexplored Bronze Age mount, which will be the first time a scientific excavation has been carried out on undisturbed burial mound from the Bronze Age period in the region itself in over 50 years. People who support the project will get exclusive access to the digital data, get training by recognized experts, as well as a chance to dig on the site, where the excavation is set to be from the 4th to the 7th of July. A seaside pop-up museum will also broadcast the excavation live and also display the finds to the public itself. For those of you who don't know about Dig Ventures, they are an excellent group for archaeology. They do a lot of stuff concerning not only preserving finds, but also making all the finds available to the public, and they do a lot of outreach and crowdfunding for excavations. One of their most recent ones, which I actually believe they hit the goal for, was the excavation of a linden's farm, which will also be taking place during the summer. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and now with that last story, I would like to say thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you can't get enough of me, as I mentioned in the start of the podcast, you can go to the ArcheoTech podcast and listen to number 28, where I was the guest host along with Chris Webster and Chris Sims. So if you're tired of listening to me talk to myself for 30 minutes, you can go there and listen to me talk to two other people for 30 minutes instead. Now, as always, for any stories that we missed or maybe any other facts that we missed in the stories, you can always go to news.stonepages.com and look at all of the stories, as well as the sources for each of the stories. If you can't get enough of us on news.stonepages.com, you can always follow us on Twitter using the Twitter handle at StonePages. And now, without further ado, I do believe it's time to say goodbye and have a great one. See you next time.